The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. Hey, I want to, you don't have to turn there, but I want to take you guys to a scene out of heaven. In uh, Revelation 7, in uh, verses 9 through 12, we don't know everything that heaven's going to look like, but here's what we do know is some of this and what we just did is going to be happening there. Thanks, man. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches with their hands. The picture here is they're standing before the throne of God and then at the right hand of God is the slain Savior of the world, Jesus, who is risen now and sits at the right hand of Him. And they're crying out to Him with loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, mighty to save. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen to that. Guys, we'll be one day, for those who are, who are redeemed in Christ, who have been made alive in Christ, we'll be standing before Him, worshiping Him and telling Him, mighty to save. That's you are mighty to save. Salvation belongs to you, God. And we get to do that here. And that's the greatest thing is we get to do that as a church, as uh, Christ followers together. And we can praise God together because of what Christ has done in many of our lives. Amen. 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 I want you to uh, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 today. Now, if you're unsure where Ephesians is, there's a thing in the front called a table of contents. It will help you out immensely. At one point, I didn't know where Ephesians was. Um, but... Turn to Ephesians 2 and why you do that. <clears throat> I want to just take a moment just to introduce you to myself and to our family a little bit. Uh, my name is Brent Sisson, and um, I'm the children's and family ministry pastor here at Heritage. And um, we've been here for since the, well, the end of June, so almost three months now. And I just want to tell you guys thank you from myself and from my, my wife, Laura, and our, and our boys. It's been a blessing to, to already be here serving here in three months. Uh, so many of you ha- have encouraged us and have, you know, just came up to us, pat us on the back, said we're glad you're here. And, and, and I tell you, we're glad we're here. Um, Henry Blackaby, he said in, um, in his book, uh, Experiencing God, he said, find out where God is at work and join him there. And, uh, and when we were, you know, praying about where God wanted us to, to serve at and where he wanted us to plan our lives at moving forward, Heritage came up, and we saw God at work. Even from 3,000 miles away, we could see just different ways that God was at work. And, uh, and, and being, on, being here for three months, we can see that. Guys, I want to let you guys know you're attending a great church. Uh, we're not perfect. I know that because I'm, uh, I'm on staff here. I attend here. And I know that even more because Jeff Hensley's the pastor here. And so, so you're not in the perfect church. But here's the thing. You're at a great church that is, is about the gospel, that wants to know Christ and make him known. That's, that's the heart of what we want to do is exalt, equip, and engage. Exalt our Savior, equip you guys and ourselves to, to serve him and to engage our, our culture, our world with the gospel. So we're at, we are at a, a great church. Uh, two interesting things I want to share with you about myself, and Jeff already uh, said one, and, 
Uh, you would have probably never picked up on it if he didn't say it, but I'm not from here. Uh, I'm, originally, uh, I'm originally from Georgia, and I'm a dog, and we lost yesterday, and uh, I've cred- uh, curled up in the fetal position last night and sucked my thumb and fell asleep after we, uh, we uh, lost there. But we, um, we, I am originally from Georgia, and we spent the past five years serving at a great church in North Carolina. And, uh, and you're like, how in the world did you end up in Oregon, of all places? Well, um, my wife, she's originally from Oregon. She has family um, up near Portland and also in the Dalles, and that's where she grew up at. And so we do have some family that's uh, somewhat nearby. Um, but, um, and so when we were looking, we were looking kind of in the, the southeast where my family's at and up here. And, um, and God really, uh, we really saw God's hand on us coming here. Uh, the second thing is, is I am a children's pastor. And, um, and I want, that, that, that should encourage you. Because um, I'm a children's pastor and I really, really, really appreciate my volunteers a whole lot. And so let's think about that for a second. I'm a children's pastor. He appreciates his volunteers and he's preaching. We might be done in 15 minutes, guys, just so I can say thank you to our volunteers that are serving today. Uh, it won't be 15 minutes, but maybe 16. But, um, but anyway, but uh, on a serious note, I am a children's pastor and I'm grateful to be in that, that role and, um, you know, just really going from a great foundation already. And, um, and, I, and I'll say to, to you guys, uh, if you don't have a place to serve, we'd love to, for you to serve our, our kids and our families. Um, our, our motto statement, our vision statement is, is partnering with families to raise a generation that follows Jesus. And here's the fact is if you're a Christ follower, God's given you the ability to serve and he's given you the gift to, uh, he wants you to serve. He doesn't want you to come to church and just soak and sour. He wants you to come soak up the word and pour it out in the lives of people. So whether that's with, with us in, in the children's ministry or in, in media or I mean, setting up or whatever it is, get, get involved, get involved. There's no such thing as a sideline Christian. And, um, and I want you guys to get involved. And uh, so I encourage you guys with that. Amen. All right. Ephesians chapter 2. Before we read it, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background. And it's important that we get background on, on books of the Bible because there's always a backstory. And, and for instance, the, the, today we're reading Ephesians chapter 2. And it's a letter. Just if, as if you were to sit down... You write a letter to your spouse, to your you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, to your grandma, grandpa. You did it for a reason. Well, this letter today was written for a reason. It was written by this guy named Paul. And a little background on Paul for if many of you know this background, but I'll just remind you. At one, Paul, Paul, one time, Paul was a very bad guy. He was persecuting the church. He, he says he was the, uh, the chief of sinners. He was a Pharisee. In other words, he, he followed the law to the T. He believed that the law would, would be the one that saved him, not no one else. And so the, these, Christ came along and these people started following Christ. And they were saying, hey, salvation comes through faith in Christ. And it hacked him off. And so he started persecuting the church. And he, he would arrest people. He would uh, kill them. I mean, he, would, he was burning churches. I mean, he was, just, he was going crazy on Christ followers. And, and at this time, his name was Saul before he came to Christ. And so a very religious man, very, very religious man, but certainly apart from Christ. And one day he was, he was on a, uh, a road to uh, this uh, city called Damascus and he met Christ. The Lord showed up there and, he said, and the Lord told him, he said, Paul, you're my chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. And, then, and for Paul, he was like, that's the very people that I'm persecuting. A Gentile is, is anyone that's not a Jew. These people, they're, some, they're Jewish Christians, but he, he, I'm persecuting them. I'm, and then also 
you're gonna, I'm a chosen instrument to reach everyone else? What, me? No. And the Lord blinds him physically, and then he makes him alive. Uh, he, he makes him see, and then he, and in that process, Paul's heart is transformed by Christ. And so fast forward, Paul, he's, he's now a Christ follower. He ends up going on three missionary journeys around this area. And he's going around and telling people about Christ. And he's, he's telling them, hey, you be safe through faith in Christ, not in the law. Not in the law. Sorry, Mr. Stan. Uh, so he, I'm, I'm going around, he's going around telling people. And on this third missionary journey, he comes to this, uh, this city called Ephesus, hence Ephesians. And Ephesus is, is today, in, if you're looking at a map in, in the, on the western coast of the, the country, not the food, of Turkey. The, the country of Turkey is on the west coast. And it's on the west coast there. And he goes there and he spends three years there pouring his life into these guys and girls, into the church there, encouraging them and, and telling them to follow Christ. And he's sharing the gospel. He spends three years. I mean, three years, you're going you're gonna to get to know people very, very much and you're going to get to know their hearts and where they're going with things. So, and, and on that, that, for three years, he's strengthening and sharing and, he can, and then he leaves and he goes and finishes his missionary journeys. Then five to 10 years later, we find Paul in Rome under house arrest because he's sharing his faith, because he's sharing the gospel. And, and at that point, he pins a few letters to different churches that he had visited, one of them being to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians. So he's now writing the book of Ephesians to these Christ followers, and he is essentially reminding them, hey guys, this is what we believe. And if the church at Ephesus was actually one of his stronger churches, if not the strongest church that he had actually um, been around. This wasn't, wasn't Corinth. They didn't have all the issues of Corinth uh, that, that we know of that Scripture doesn't say it uh, does. And so the church of Ephesus is a strong church, and he's writing this letter to them to say, hey, guys, this is the stuff we believe. This is the core of what we believe and then he spends the second half of Ephesians kind of saying, this is how it fleshes out to your relationships with your wives, with your husbands, with your kids, with, with parents and to children and children to parents. This is what we believe. This is how it fleshes out in our lives. And if you notice, too, if you, if you were to read the entire book of Ephesians, which you can do in 20, 30 minutes, he, he doesn't address it to any, any certain individual. It was written to, to, to just, it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So this is going, obviously it's written to Christians, but it, it, church history says that it was, it ends up being a circular letter. In other words, it was a letter written and a, a one church would read it. They would be encouraged by it. And they would send it on to the next church in Ephesus. And so, and it, it reached that city. And so that's the background of this book. And then the implications of this passage today are great. Now let's read Ephesians chapter two, verse one through 10. Paul says, and you, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you were dead. Again, he's talking to Christians here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive 
together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For, gra- for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray, guys. Father, the, this is an enormous text here, an amazing text. This is the gospel. And God, uh, the implications are, are enormous for this in, the, in every person's life in this room, in mine included. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, that you would do your work in the hearts of people in this room, that the word of God would accomplish the mission of God in each person in this room. And uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, I just want to reiterate the implications of this passage for everyone in here, whether you're, you're 10 years or younger, or whether you're in middle school or in high school or in college or a grandma or grandpa or everything in between. This passage right here impacts you greatly, deeply. It impacts our church greatly and deeply. My prayer this week is that this passage would grip my heart even more and that it would grip your heart and that we would, for many of us, we, we say we believe this word and I pray that my prayer is that we would act, it would take deep, deep root and as we really believe this, it would flush out into, into just living that glorifies God and points people to him. Major implications. All right, let's, let's dive into it. Let's go verse by verse through this. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin and sins in which you once walked. Paul is pointing out, he's, he's coming straight out of the gate to, these, uh, to the Ephesians, and he's saying, hey guys, you were dead. Like, if you've ever seen The Princess Bride, there's a scene in there where he says he's mostly dead. This isn't that. This is all, he's fully dead right here. He's saying you were fully dead. Now, here's the thing. Obviously, these guys weren't physically dead. Otherwise, he wouldn't be writing to them because they'd be dead. So there was something else going on. It's because they were spiritually dead. Every one of us has, a, obviously, a physical body, but we also have a, a spiritual, uh, we, we have a spirit. And here's the thing. The reality is whether your body is decaying, uh, decaying away or if it's in the best shape of its life, your spirit can be in awful, awful shape or it can be in incredible shape if you're being made alive by Christ. And he's telling these people, he says, hey guys, you are dead in the trespasses and sin. So there was a reason they were dead. And the reason is because of trespasses and sin. Now, trespasses, the word just kind of means wrongdoing, but sins is a, is a kind of a more uh, deeper word. And in the original uh, language, uh, Greek, that it was written, it was this word hamartia. And, and this word was an archery term. So if you think of a bullseye, you think of, um, obviously, dartboard. I've got one at home. I should have brought it. And, but dead center is perfection. It's perfection. Like, that is the bullseye. Everything else is missed, missing. It's sin. It's harmartia. It's sin. And he's saying that God is holy. He's perfect. Everything he does, by his very nature, he, he can't do anything else other than be perfect and holy. Dead center. Hamartia, this Greek word, sin, that we interpret it as, is missing the mark. And so we, we miss the mark. I miss the mark. My heart misses the mark. My heart is prone to sin. And we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans tells us. 
We all sin. We all miss that mark. Even our best things that we do, we could have went through life and done all kinds of incredible things. We could have, you know, saved many, many lives. We could, I mean, any number of things that we could have done. But yeah, the heart of it, we all sin. We all sin. And, and that causes spiritual death in us. And we're born with that sin nature. So in some ways, we're born spiritually dead. We have to be made alive by Christ. We have to be made alive by Christ. And so you're dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so he's saying you're dead. And in, in that spiritual death, you were doing some very specific things in your life. In the way that you walked, in, in the way that you lived your life. He says you were following the course of this world. You were doing everything that the world does. You were living your life just as the world does. You're following the course of this world. Someone who is spiritually dead, if you, in your heart today, if God says, man, you, dude, you're spiritually dead. You're following the course of this world. You're following the course of this world. And even more, he amps it up. He says, you're following the prince of the power of the air. Straight out, you're following Satan. And you're like, I'm not following Satan. I mean, I'm not worshiping Satan or anything. And the scripture makes it clear, you're either following God or you're following Satan. There's no in-between. There's no saying, um, I'm following part God, part Satan. No, he's saying, you're, if you're made alive by Christ, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, you're following the Savior, you're following God. But if you're spiritually dead... You're following Satan. And, and, and he calls him the prince of the power there. Notice he doesn't call him the king. There's only one king and it's Jesus. He's the prince because Satan has, has some type of power right now. God has, has allowed him to have power, to have some, uh, so to say, free reign in some ways to, to lead people astray from God. But he's the prince of it. He doesn't have total control over it. And he's the prince of the power of the air. Let me explain that a little bit. Power of the air. What does that mean? Uh, Greek thought was that the, the area between where we're at and like the atmosphere was the, the abode, the living place of the spirits. And so, so Satan is the prince of, that, of the, the spirits. He was just, he's saying he's the prince of the spirits. That's why he says prince of the power of the air. So you're dead. You're walking according to the world. You're following the prince of the power of the air. You're following Satan. And he, said, and he goes even further, he says, the spirit that is now at work in the, in the sons of disobedience. The, very, the, the people that are disobeying God, that are not following God, that haven't been made alive by Christ, they are following Satan because they're, they're sons of disobedience. He says, that's the same, the same spirit that was at work in you is the same work at the, the people now that are not following Christ. And then, and then he goes on, he says, among whom... And he, I mean, notice he uses the word we. He, he's pointing out, this is where, how was that? Among whom we all once lived. We all were there. He says, guys, we were all there. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We ever, anything, our, everything we wanted to do, we did. Any passion we had, we wanted to do. Any, any itch, we, wanted, we would scratch it. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. So carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, again, just doing whatever we want, whatever we thought of. But here's the thing I want you guys to, to grasp is every single one of you your, you, your heart, your spiritual heart, you have someone on the throne of your heart. It's either you or it's Christ Jesus. 
There's only two, you, it's either you or Christ Jesus. And here's the thing is if it's you, then you're going to follow, you're going to live in the passions of your flesh. You're going to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. Because here's the thing, uh, this may be a Southern saying, so I apologize if it is, but uh, they're saying I've always heard what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What's down in your heart is going to come out in your life. You can't, you can't work around that, guys. Like, there's no way to pretend uh, that there's something else in your heart. And so either Christ Jesus is king of your heart, or it's yourself. And so you're going to carry out the desires of your body, of your mind, because of what's in your heart, because that's what's going to come out. What's down in your well is going to come up in the bucket. If orange juice is down in, your, in the well of your heart, then orange juice is going to come out. If water's down in there, water's going to come out. If, godly, if a Christ Jesus is the king of your heart, godly living's going to come out. If not, if it's yourself, then guess what? Those acts are going to come out in your life. And it comes out in my life. Because here's the thing, guys. Even as a Christ follower, sometimes I'm like, Christ Jesus, Jesus uh, I need you to step aside. I want to be on the throne of my heart. I want to make this call right here. I want to do this. And so even for Christ followers, that's that battle between the flesh and the spirit. And so, obviously, though, for someone that's not a Christ follower, all they can do is live in the passions of their flesh, carrying out, they carry out the desires of the body and the mind. And here's the thing. It says, we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Like children of wrath, man, that's a hard word, like wrath. I mean, think of how deep that word is. I was pretty wrathful yesterday when Georgia lost. I was hacked off, and then I got over it. But, but here's the thing. Children, who were children of wrath. This is a very, very deep word. And the reason is, is because, remember earlier I said, God is holy, God is perfect, we're not. Sin cannot be where a perfect, holy God is. And because of that, by his nature, by nature, he, he has to pour out wrath on sin. And so if you, if you today are like, I've never trusted Christ, I will tell you, you're dead in your sin. And because of that, come the end of your life, you're going to stand before the, the throne and he's, he's going to see sin. He's going to see sin. He's got poor, he has to pour out wrath. It's his nature to, because of sin, because of sin. But here's the thing, if we're in Christ, what happens is when we trust Christ, there's a sense where God's looking at us and then on steps of seeing Christ. And he steps in front of us and says, I got this one. And then so you stand before the throne, he sees the, sin, the, the sinless savior of the world. That's the difference there between wrath and not wrath. And here's the thing for Christ followers, we know that wrath has been poured out on our behalf. It's been poured out on Christ. So someone paid, someone's got to pay for your sin. It's either going to be you or you're going to allow it to, your, your faith in Christ. Your faith in Christ there. Like the rest of mankind. Let's just stop there and let that sink in for a second. This is an ugly picture. Like, this is not a, a picture that you tell your kids, hey, go read that and, you know, draw me a good picture, you know, based off of it. It's not something that, like, I mean, it's a... It's a ugly, ugly picture. And here's the thing, guys. This was me. This was my life. 
No, I wasn't like, even before Christ, like I wasn't involved in all kinds of, you know, horrible, horrible behavior. But here's the thing is, before Christ made me alive, that was me. That was me. I was, follow, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was walking according to the world. I was following Satan. I was a son of disobedience. I was following the passions of my flesh. I was, I was carrying out the desires of my body, my mind, and I was a child of wrath. That's, that's an ugly picture. But it wasn't until in December 1997 that I went to a, a camp, a retreat with my, the church that we were attending at the time. And somehow, I mean, back up for a second, I knew the gospel too, by the way. I grew up in the church. I knew the gospel. My grandpa, he's, a, he's, he's been a pastor his entire life. He's retired now. But, I mean, I grew up in the church. I knew the gospel. But I didn't have a relationship with Christ. I hadn't been made alive by Christ. And then in December 1997, I w- went to a retreat with the church that we were attending. And, and something just clicked in my heart of of the great love, which we'll read about here in just a minute, that Christ has for me, has for you. And I responded in faith. I responded in faith. I, I don't know if I knew what else to do other than to respond in faith. I was made alive at that point, which we'll see in a minute. But I was dead before that. And guys, I want to tell you too, just share my heart. This is why I'm in ministry, full-time vocational ministry. Here's the thing is, could I be, could I... Uh, be doing something else. Absolutely. I could be working at a bank. I could be flying an airplane, which I'd love to do. Uh, by the way, that's one of my greatest things I, I like about living in Medford is literally I drive by the airport every day. I'm an airplane fanatic and I get to see like DC 10s and you know, all this stuff. I love it. But anyway, I could be doing any of those things. I, I mean, I, I, if I wanted to, but here's my heart is I want to see dead people made alive, dead spiritually made alive. And here even more so I want to see the alive, which is the church, the Christ followers, go to the spiritually dead. And that's, that's really, I mean, my job as a, as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's Jeff's or Sam's or Jeremy's. That's our job is to equip the saints to do ministry, to reach spiritually dead people, to reach spiritually dead people. Because the reality is, in the world today, there's great, great, great spiritual deadness. Incredible spiritual deadness in our world. A few stats. I'm gonna, uh, uh, stats, you know, I didn't do anything with stats, but I'll show you guys a couple of things. Um, let's see. There we go. There they come. In this world right now, we have 9,756 people groups. Now, to stop for a second, a people group is anybody that's like has a different... Uh, linguistic different, diff, different ethnicity. For instance, a, uh, an Asian America is a different people group than a, than a, a white American or an African American. I mean, it's just a different people group. And so there's, in the world today, there's 9,756 people groups. And in that, that includes the world's population, 7.2 billion. Right now, 4,083 people groups that, that include around 3 billion people are unreached unreached in the world. Let me get, unreached means little to no access to the gospel, little to no presence of, of Christ followers among them, among three billion. And that's just people unreached. If you looked at the, the little to somewhat reached, it, it goes up to like five and a half billion people, five to five and a half billion, billion with a B. That's a, and, and here's the thing is if we believe Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, 
then that means, just based off of that bottom statistic, at least three billion people are spiritually dead. And, if, and, when, and when they die, they're a child of wrath. If we believe this. And that's my prayer is that this would take heart. This is the truth of the gospel. I'll go to the next slide. Even if you look at the top, uh, the, the, the number one unreached people group in the world is the Sheikh people. And this is according to the Joshua Project. The Sheikh people a group in uh, Bangladesh. And they have 135 million people with little to no access to the gospel or little to no uh, Christ followers in that group. And that's the same number of people that live in the top populous seven states in the United States. Uh, California, Texas, New York, Florida, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Ohio combined. You combine all those people from all those states and throw them together in one state... That's the number of people, that's in, people that are in the, the shake people group. That means if you did all those states combined and you went through all 135 million people, there's a chance you might not find one Christ follower. Let that sink in dead, spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. And even like in our, even in our more immediate context here in just the state of Oregon, I don't have, I don't have any statistics. I, here's what I do know. Uh, I'm just kind of looking around about it. Um, a 2009, so it's a little outdated, five years, but it's probably still true. Gallup poll said that Oregon was the most unreligious state in the U.S. Around 40% of people said they had no re- religious affiliation. And now that's, so you're thinking 60%, that includes Muslims and Mormons and um, Buddhists and uh, all kinds of different people. But so, I mean, at the very most, you're thinking maybe 20% of people that would say, I'm following Christ. Guys, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. People are spiritually dead. And they need to be made spiritually alive. And even more so in my own immediate heart and just my, just being transparent right here, as a children's and family ministry pastor, one of the reasons that it brings me great joy to do what I do is because I believe the, the, I firmly believe the greatest sending agency to reach the world is families. It's not a seminary. It's not a uh, organization, an international mission board or a, you know, a, a voice of the martyrs or anything like that. It's the family. Because it's moms and dads who would say, to their kids, grandparents say to their grandkids and grandkids and aunts and uncles say to their nieces and nephews, listen, more than anything, I want you to know Christ and I want you to make him known. Even if that means you leaving home and, and going to some backwoods country to share the God, uh, you know, gospel so that they may be made spiritually alive, I'm okay with that because I know, I know that there are people spiritually dead and I want to see them be made spiritually alive. It's the family. It's you, moms and dads. It's you saying, you know what? More than I want my kid to be a great athlete, I want them to know Christ. And I want them to make him known. And so if, if that means us setting aside some type of athletic venture to make that happen, then we'll do it. It's the family. Guys, it is the family. It's you. It's grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles. I just want to encourage you in that. And that's my job and my wife's job is to, to pour biblical truth into our families so they can reach the world. High school students in here, you are, even more so than your moms and dads probably, you're in a, in a context where 
you get to reach people with the gospel. You, you get to reach people with the gospel. Point them to Christ. Follow him in, in that high school or middle school or even on a, if you're a college student on that college campus. They're the nation, you know, the, one of the greatest places the nation's come to are college campuses here in the United States. What if you reach someone that's from whatever country, they, they may be made, they're made alive in Christ. They go back to their home and tell people. It's us, guys. We've got work to do. I've got work to do. So let's go, go on through Ephesians uh, 2, and let's go to verse 4, and then go down to uh, verse 10. But God, probably the two greatest words in all Scripture, and your version may be a little bit different, but in the ESV it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Guys, think of this picture. God's looking down on dead, spiritually dead people, spiritually dead me, spiritually dead you. And it says God's got a little bit of mercy. God's got a little mercy on him. No, it says he's got a rich in mercy. He's bringing the dump, dump truck loads in and saying, here's my mercy for you. Here's my mercy for you. Here's my mercy. Here's the love that I have for you. I'm going to send my very best, my perfect sinless son to live a life that I or you can never live, to die a death that we should, be, we should have died, to go in a grave and be risen again, that we, something we can never do. I'm going to send him. I'm, that great love, I'm going to send him. I'm gonna, because I love you, because I have great mercy for you. And even, I'm going to do that even when you're dead. Even when you were spiritually dead in your trespasses. And he, he, he's, he makes us alive together with Christ. He makes us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace that we're saved. We're saved from what? Death. So when someone says, I'm, I'm saved, what does that mean? You're saved. You're saved from death. You're saved from the consequences of, of death as well and the consequences of sin. Uh, or you're not saved from the consequences of sin necessarily, but you're saved from the penalty of sin. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, and you're like, what? I'm not raised up with, I mean, I'm not, I don't feel necessarily raised up and I'm certainly not seated with him right now. I'm seated in a chair in a gym. Well, raised up with him. The picture of it is, is Christ went into the grave. He was dead. He was made alive again. Just the same way God wants to, God, for those who are Christ followers, he has came and made us who are dead and made us alive. For if you're, if you are spiritually dead today and you're without Christ, you're still dead. You have not been made alive with Christ. You're spiritually dead. You could be the most religious person in the world, but you're still spiritually dead. And Christ wants to, God wants to make you alive through Christ. And, and, it, and it seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. I'm not going to go into all of that, but here's what you need to know about that. Is that our true home? It's where Christ is, not the grave. One day our physical bodies will die. I mean, we'll give away and they'll die. And, but our, the grave is not the end. Our true, true home is where Christ is. And even now, our true home is not this earth. Our true home is with Christ. 
So we've been seated with him as if we were right there with him right now. That's our eternal destiny. That's, our, that's where we're headed towards. And then verse 7. So that, and there's a reason he does all, all of that. We just, he, made, he makes us alive, raises us up, and seated us with him. He, there's a reason. So that in the coming ages, he might show, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's not, in the end, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. Uh, John MacArthur, he said best, he said, salvation is not only for our benefit and glory, because we do have some benefit, obviously, to be saved and be made alive. God's greater purpose in salvation is for his own sake, so that the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus might be made known. So that can people look at a live person, if you're spiritually alive, they can look at you and they can see God's riches poured out. And they can give glory to God and say, God, praise you, you poured out miserable riches on that person, on that person, on that person. You did that. It's all about you, God. It's all about you. He does it for a reason. He does it for a reason. And in verse 8, we, and we know, a lot of us, we know this, we memorize this. If you haven't, that's okay. But it says, for by grace, by God's grace, you've been saved, saved from death, through faith. So for by grace, you've been saved through faith. There's a, there's a conduit of God's, you know, of Christ's atoning death and resurrection and us, and it's faith. It's faith in him. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And you're like, well, what, what is not our own doing? Is, it, is grace not our own doing or is it faith? I would say both. Like God gives us grace. I don't even say God gives us faith. But there's also a sense where we have to respond in faith. So kind of a dichotomy, dichotomy a little bit, and I'll let Jeff explain it later or something. But, uh, but by grace you've been saved. This is not your own doing. It is God's gift. God gives it to you. It is a gift to you. Think of the best gift you've ever received, ever in your life. I don't know what my, mine's probably my wife. Everybody say, aw. Yeah, there we go. So the greatest gift ever, but even better than that. He gives his grace. He gives Faith in some, like you're saying, God has to give me faith for, for me to respond in faith. Scripture does support both. But here, here's what you need to know. It's his gift to you. He freely gives it to you, to anyone. That's why we go to the, wor- the world. We go to our, our neighbors here in Medford. We go to our schools, wherever we're at. We go to, uh, you know, a God-forsaken place like North Carolina or something. It's not God-forsaken, by the way. I'm just joking. Um, if you're listening online later and you're from North Carolina, I love, we love North Carolina. I'm just, I, just, I say that because Jeff's from there. So uh, anyway, but um, I'm picking on Jeff. But Jeff, like, picked really hard on me about my, see, how tall I am. My language, I mean, the way I, not my language, but the way I say things. So it's coming back. Um, but anyway, well, that's the reason we go to all these places is to proclaim that, hey, there's a gift for you. There's a gift for you. And it's his grace that he can make you alive. He makes you alive. He makes the dead alive. And then verse nine, he says, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Here's the thing. If you could do something to save yourself, then you could, you could walk around and say, look, look, guys, look at me. I saved myself. I did this. I did that. I did that. 
I, I went through this, this as a child. I went through this class as a child. Look at what I did. I, I, you know, I helped this lady at the, at the retirement center. I did this. I did that. Whatever it may be. It's not about that. You could boast in that. You can boast in that. No, he's saying it's, it's not a result of works whatsoever. It's a result of his grace and your faith, you responding in faith. It's a result of that. It's a result, it's him. It's about him, it's not about you. You can boast in those things. It's, you can boast in those things. Uh, one of my favorite stories, just kind of illustrate this, a really quick story. Um, a guy named, a lot of you guys have heard of this guy, David Platt. Um, he's a pastor at a church in Alabama, or was, and he's now the president of a mission board. And um, he, he wrote in his book, he said, I remember sitting outside a Buddhist temple in Indonesia. Men and women filled with elaborate, colorful temple grounds where they daily perform their religious, or filled the elaborate, colorful temple grounds where they daily perform their religious rituals. They went through, the, they're going through the, the religious rituals and doing the same thing over and over. Meanwhile, I was engaged in a conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader in this particular community. They were discussing how all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. So Christianity is the same, Islam's the same, Buddhism's the same, all these things are the same. They just, they've got, you know, on the outside, they look a little bit different. And so one guy said, we may have different views about small issues, one of them said, but when it comes down to essential issues, each of our religions is the same. Uh, Platt said, I listened for a while, and then they asked me what I thought. I said, it sounds as though you pictured both God, or whatever you call God, at the top of a mountain. So picture God at the top of a mountain. It seems as if you believe that we are all at the bottom of the mountain, and I may take one route up, one route, route, whatever. I may take one route up the mountain, you may take another, but in the end, we all end up in the same place. And different religions, you know, say, you gotta do these works, you gotta, you know, attend this, you gotta, you know, do these five pillars. All these works to get there. They smiled as I spoke, happily they replied, exactly, you understand, you understand. Then I leaned in, Platt said, and said, now let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to where we are? What would you think if I told you that God doesn't wait for people to find their way to him, but instead he comes to us? They thought for a moment and then responded, that'd be great. I replied, let me introduce you to Jesus. And that's the, that's the heart of the gospel is God coming down to us. We don't have to do all this stuff to get to him. We respond to him in faith. We respond to the riches that he pours out on us, the immeasurable riches that he pours out on us. The, the fact that he makes us alive spiritually, we respond to that. We respond to that. He, he's came down to us. He's came down to us. That's the heart of the gospel right there. I mean, I'm serious. If you're here today and you haven't, you know, responded in faith to the grace that he gives, he's given, he's here. He, he's came to you so that you can respond in faith and so that you can be made alive and not be spiritually dead anymore. Not be spiritually dead. And then finally, uh, Paul finishes up this little passage and he says, for we are his workmanship. And he's talking to the Christ followers here. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. 
For we are his workmanship. There, this word right here in the original language, it, uh, the Greek, it was this word poema. Poema. It's a really, really cool word. It's where we get our word uh, poem from. So how many of you ever written a poem? Roses are red, violets are blue. You know, the Tar Heels stink and so do you or something. I don't know. And, um, sorry, Jeff, I'm getting you, man. And so, <laughs> and so, but here's the thing. We're his workmanship. We're his poema. We're his poem. We're his, he is the one has written, he has crafted us. He has made us for very specific purpose. If I were to sit down and write a poem, I would do it for a very specific purpose. And it would be my creation. And it, and it says, we are his we are his, created in Christ Jesus for good works. As a Christ follower, you're created to do good works. That's what, and, and even more, he, he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God did this even somehow, some way, back in ages past, you know, even before, well, you can't say even before eternity began, but, but in ages past, God somehow, he had it laid out for you. For me, good works, good works, because we're his, uh, we are the ones that he created. He's created us to do good works. That's what John 15 is all about, that, you know, just being, abiding in the spirit. And that's the conduit is we were, we rest in the spirit and we allow the spirit to live through us and we produce good works. We produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We do that and we, we produce good works because of what he has done. Because of what he has done. Here's the thing, guys. If you're alive in Christ today, if Christ has made you alive, God has made you alive through Christ, praise him. Live out your good works because of what he has done in your life. He has made you alive spiritually. He has made you alive. He's made me alive. We have great reason to praise him, to sing mighty to say, to sing salvation belongs to our God. We have every reason to do that. We have every reason to do that, to live out our faith, to live it out because he's made us alive. If you're dead in Christ, come to him. Come to him today. He's came to you to make you alive spiritually so that you won't be dead spiritually, so that you won't rest in religion or rest in good works or rest in any other number of things, but that you would rest in Christ, in Christ alone. He would make you alive. And then here in a minute, we're going to we'll stand and um, our uh, huddle group leaders and some elders and their wives will go to the back. If you have never made that decision, just walk back there and just say, I just need to talk to someone about how to be made alive. I want to be made alive spiritually. I want to know Christ. So if, if you have not trusted Christ, if, if you're spiritually dead, you're dead. I mean, I just want to reiterate that you're spiritually dead. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him alone. He'll make you alive. He'll make you alive. If you're alive in, in Christ, here's what I want to encourage you. I want you to think of maybe two, one, two, maybe three people that you know that don't know Christ, that you would say they're probably spiritually dead based off of maybe conversations or just what I know about their lives. They're probably spiritually dead. I want, during our, uh, while Sam plays here in just a minute, I want you to take some time to pray, to pray for him. We'll, we'll stand, but you can I mean, stand, sit down or stand up, but just spend, take some time to pray 
for them. Pray for them. That they, they would be made alive and not dead. I want to encourage you, too. I want to encourage you deeply that prayer is going to it will work. Just this past week, a, a dear friend of ours back in North Carolina, our church in North Carolina, a couple years ago, his, his dad found out that he had cancer, uh, that he was going to, you know, had just probably a few months. He ended up lasting basically about two years. And just this, and, his, and our, my friend Rob, he, he over, just continually shared the gospel with him. His dad was like, no, no, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Just this past week, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, his dad died. But the day before, the day of, I'm not sure, his, his dad said, I, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And so, guys, girls, Christ followers, pray for people. Pray, pray for those people that they be made alive. It, it, prayer works. I don't know how, but it works. And, and I know this, God's in the, the business of making dead people alive. And so, again, if you're, if you're spiritually dead, use this time to, to talk to someone. Let's pray, guys. Everyone stand and let's pray. Father, praise you that you make spiritually dead people alive. God, you've made me alive. And God, I praise you for that. And I tell you that you're wonderful. You're amazing. You're an amazing God who deserves all of our praise, our adoration, everything because of that. God, I pray that even now, uh, God, that your spirit would work in the lives of people that are spiritually dead. And that you would give them faith. You would, give, you would see the gift that they have in your grace. God, they respond. They want to be made alive. You got to pray for Christ followers as they pray for people that are spiritually dead. God, I pray that they would remain steadfast in that, knowing that you do want to make dead people alive. We pray that in Jesus' name.